start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow. I am your other host, Susan Fox. And with us are none other than the Kyoto Brothers. All three of them. (laughs) All three at once in the same room. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Well, hi. Hi, hi. Great to, be, great to be here with you. The Kyotos are responsible for some of the greatest cult classic uh, sci-fi and, and horror films from the 1980s. Uh, you have a project coming up uh, very, very close to here on the calendar. Uh, the 19th, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes, on, yes, May 19th. May 19th, the Killer Clowns from Outer Space performance with a live orchestra? Yes, yes, it's a great event. John Massari, the composer of the original score, has uh, rescored the soundtrack to a 70-piece orchestra that will be playing live with the film at the Montauban Theater this uh, Saturday, May 19th. Yeah, evidently when John was writing the score back in 1987 for the movie that was released in 1988, he had always envisioned the score with this grand full orchestra, but the budget and technology at the time were restrictive, so he couldn't do that. So he got a instead a, a classic 80 synth score that we love, the fans love, but in the back of John's mind, he always had this idea that it deserved something better. Oh. So Okay, because I'm watching this and going, there wasn't an orchestral score in this. What, what are they going to have? A guy there with a with a Moog? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what I it think was. At, at best, he he was able to sample a couple of uh, instruments, but still, even in the in the late '80s, there was still a thin score. But he wrote it for sixty. Oh, actually, he wrote it for seventy-six piece orchestra, oh, uh, wow. a full orchestral score that we're going to see. We we got a sample of it at some of the. Uh, some of the uh, sessions for the, the CD remix, and it was pretty amazing. We were blown away to sit there watching the score for our little movie with 76 unbelievable musicians. It's, it's quite, a, quite a, a, an accomplishment and a, a spectacle. It must be really an emotional experience hearing, seeing your film with that going on. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's, uh, John really pumps up the drama with his synth score and when you hear it with a full orchestra it really uh, takes on itself to a new level yeah it's great enough to seeing a full orchestra in, in any case we're at the the eastwood stage on the warner brothers lot with this again a full orchestra 
um, just doing this music. It's it's a, a lot of ways it's better than the movie. Yeah, it makes that movie look cheap. <laughs> don't downgrade the movie. It was like letter perfect, 50s, you know. I, I didn't know what this uh, live performance was going to entail because as, as I remembered, and I had just watched it again the other day, this movie didn't have an orchestra score. It had just the... Uh, the electronic music. You know, what are they going to have? One guy up there with a moog and a, and a merry-go-round? A calliope? <laughs> That's an interesting concept. But when uh, the Kyoto brothers approached me for the score, they were very clear that their admiration for music was uh, very classic scores of uh, King Kong, The Seventh Voyage of Sinpad, so they, which is a very, very uh, structured uh, traditional orchestral sound. However, the added instruction was we want it to sound so different and unique. We don't want it to sound like an orchestra. So the the compositional material has to be classic, but it has to be performed by uh, instruments other two ha we have never heard. So I, I spent uh, like a month coming up with new uh, synthesizer sounds uh, off of my off of all the synthesizers I had at the time. And just use classical musical approach, but used all the instruments uh, at my uh, disposal electronically to create those sounds. Uh, so, so now we're coming full circle in performing the music in its original, uh, its original music form, which is classical music actually written for the orchestra. Yeah, I was just telling the fellows that uh, we are the world's only full-time sci-fi geek culture radio station. The only one in the world. Yeah, this is not a podcast. Lovely. This is like a full-time radio station. We've got music going all the time and probably from all your movies. <laughs> Excellent. I wonder who's going to be the first knockoff. I wonder there's probably going to be a lot of wannabes out there to be the next cult radio station. <laughs> We've had two, watch two coming oh already and we just waved as they went by yeah try and drink our milkshake guys yeah, mm -hmm. yeah because it takes so much energy and so much time and so much material uh to do what we do that by the time you try to get into the market you've basically cloned our entire sound oh my goodness and, yeah and you can't you can't do it there's no room in the market for two of us because we were we're already here and if you try and come mm -hmm. in after us, nobody cares. And so, yeah. <laughs> so we've had, uh, yeah, we have had a couple of imitators, and they have come and gone in, in a matter of about eight months apiece. Yeah. So there we are. So, so we watch movies. We love movies. We, um, I, I love a lot of movies, and I loved a lot mm -hmm. of uh, 50s science fiction movies. Uh, you know, the, the, the B movies that, you know, two, two in the... Double features and the drive-ins, and this is structured perfectly as one of those, only with clowns. Well, okay. yes. You're, well, you're amongst great company because that's exactly where we came from. We we <laughs> we grew up in all the the uh, triple and quadruple feature Saturday matinees, and we all have fond. The Kyoto brothers each have a very fond memories of how um, they were introduced to the genre. That's uh, that of course they'll tell you, and I'll tell you mine. Yeah. Well, the uh, the entire film Killer Class from Outer Space is basically an homage to all the movies we grew up with. In fact, you probably see some of your favorite scenes, references to some of those. 
classic 50s uh, movies. The first two actors we see are pretty much the first two to die, basically. <laughs> and those are the first ones we've actually heard of, which being Royal Dano, who played old coots for decades at that point. He was in favorite Twilights. Oh, he was in every, just about every Western, uh, even Twilight Zone episodes, yeah. Okay, guys, and, um, be very careful one of the, about... But, you know, you were saying about the classic 50s. Uh, there, there is just about every... Um, genre movie you can imagine has a reference in this movie. My favorite one is um, Forbidden Planet, where uh, the our two heroes uh, wander into a into the spaceship, and it's like you, you realize it's a transdimensional spaceship, and it has this monstrous, uh, you know, power generator uh, reactor room. In, inside yes, of it yes, that exactly. they come across. We saw that scene. The 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 boy and the girl come into that tower. And uh, mm. that big crackling orb of energy and looking down into the abyss. And uh, we looked at each other like and said, forbidden oh, planet. forbidden planet. Oh, yes. <laughs> for a laboratory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, this, oh, that, that was great stuff. No, mm -hmm. we can't, you can't, uh, you know, forget the, uh, the, the cotton candy cocoons are on homage to the uh, invasion of the body snatchers. Sure mm -hmm. uh -huh. That didn't taste so taste as good as cotton candy, though. Unless it really was cotton candy, which you know. And, the whole, and there's a the there's a plot line of the movie is the uh, the blob, the Steve McQueen. Mm. No, that was pink. Was it pink? Mm -hmm. It was pink, wasn't it? Pinky orange. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, a, a giant vat of methyl cellulose. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, and then, I, I, another favorite of mine. Well, it's a, it's a two for one. Toward the end, we have Clownzilla, which is, is a, a combination, I guess you can say, of King Kong and uh, Godzilla. You know, yo, um, he was he so, was awesome. So there's just about everything hit there. Yeah, I just seeing him come out of the ceiling there. That was just. <laughs> That's the boss you know, battle, you, man. Yeah, you you the think gamers all you think the two guys driving the the ice cream truck through the wall. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like I can spoil this thing because it's been out for like decades. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but the two guys driving the ice cream truck through the just the 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 indestructible idiots, the well, indestructible mm -hmm. idiots trope. I think that goes back to the Commedia dell'arte. You know, they they, uh -huh. they can't die. They're the funny guys. Yeah, mm -hmm. they were in a different movie. Yeah, I think so. Well, yeah. they were in their own movie. The funny thing was, what we did is uh, we based it on some characters that we grew up with, the Terenzi brothers, the actual Rich and Paul Terenzi, but uh, and they were pretty wacky guys. The the thing was, uh, they were the characters, like in, in a lot of science fiction movies, not just comedy, they weren't comedy relief, but they were the guys who just didn't get it. They were out of the moment. They were out of the situation. They could not wrap their minds around the fact that there was an invasion, all they want to do is get laid. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yeah. That's teenagers. So, um, from the earliest times, when you had the script, I mean, what, where did the genesis of this film come from? I mean, this is... Uh, is it one of those, I could do that moments? <laughs> or was it, or was it, hey, guys, you know, We've, I think we can scrape enough money together. Let's do something crazy. Uh, that's, so the idea came from something as simple as me tr trying to think of the most scariest moment I could imagine. And for me, it was driving down a lonely mountain road and having 
a vehicle passed me. When I looked to see what it was, it was a clown. And for me, a clown being where he shouldn't be was pretty frightening. Yeah, a dark and lonely road. And then, you know, just conversations, because, you know, the brothers, when we sit around, we, we, we brainstorm, and just a suggestion came up, well, what if the clown wasn't in a car? <laughs> if, had, if it was not in a car, it would be floating. And then the logical conclusion, if it's floating, it would have to be from outer space. And, and, if, a clown, and if a clown from outer space was on Earth, what they would be doing here? Well, why they'd be killing people, of course. Of course. So again, it just it's funny. It bounces. One thing builds from another. You know, a simple idea, and it just builds. And all of a sudden, you say, well, geez, that's kind of silly, but maybe we could do something with it. And there was an opportunity to go to somebody because we were trying to sell stop motion uh, ideas mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a, a decade where stop motion is very expensive, very time consuming, and no one wanted to touch it. So we had an opportunity to pitch a low-budget film, and we tried to figure out what could we put together for a reasonable amount of uh, uh, money on a low budget. Well, I love your tagline, you know. Uh, why here? Why now? Why clowns? Why not? <laughs> and it just, it just sort of sums up the film, really. And, it it uh, kind of plays with the notion that, at least back in the 80s, when people saw clowns, they saw them as friendly entertainers. And when you got too close to their antics, you find out that they're deadly. Uh, so it was like a spin on how society looks at clowns. And the whole, the whole premise of the film was summed up in, in, in one line when uh, Suzanne asked, popcorn, why popcorn? And Grant says, Mike Tobacco says, because they're clowns, that's why. And that allows, that opens up a whole world of things because nothing crazy, we can't come up with anything crazy enough to not fit in a clown world. Because whenever someone says, well, why would they do that? We say, because they're clowns. That's why. That's a good answer. I loved the uh, inventiveness. You know, the, 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 the many myriad different ways the clowns had of killing people. With uh, we touch the surface. alien clown technology. Yeah, well, what we did was we... We looked at every clown or circus motif we could think of, gag and carnival tricks, and we, we turned them into what we call candy-coated kills. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So people get killed. A lot of people get killed in that movie, but they, they do it in a rather uh, comical manner. Well, the, 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 the operating procedure or the, the, the rule was it had to be clever, and it had mm -hmm. to be funny. And, and that, that's how we did it. If a, if, uh, if it was done with a knife or just a, you know, a, a simple bludgeoning, it wasn't clever enough. So we, mm -hmm. we'd have to push it to that level that, uh, you know, it would be, you know, your, your one-two punch where you know, you'd see something, you know, horrific happen, but then you'd go, holy crap, that was crazy. Yeah, the realization that uh, there's someone dead, someone as a result of that action. In fact, at the end of the movie, when you go back into the cocoon room, you'll see hundreds, if not thousands, of victims in that room and in that chamber. Yeah, it was like I'm hoping they weren't dead and just just resting or you know, being mm -hmm. kept fresh. They were pretty much dead. Maybe they're yeah. dead. They're on their way. <laughs> they they were not in a good place. The the uh, you know a high kill count in that movie. Um, the 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 fact that uh, that Debbie um, was uh, was in that balloon uh, just gives you uh, you know you sort of can imagine what was in store for her and there was a room full of cocoons and balloons. And to me, a very poignant line as uh, Dave, the cop, 
about leaving the cocoon room, he said, we can't leave here. There still might be people alive in these balloons. Now, it was delivered with, you know, you know just uh, urgency and, and earnestness. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, when you think about it, he was concerned for the victims that were in the balloon. Some people say it was a stupid line. It was a perfect line. Well, no, it, made, mm -hmm. it gave him some it, compassion. I mean, he's the good cop. He's supposed to feel that way. Well, and the other thing it did is it expanded the reality that you were portraying uh, with, with a mm -hmm. line. You suggested that there were other people inside those, those balloons when, in fact, you know, there obviously weren't. But uh, uh, you created the, the impression in people's minds that there were, and that expands, immediately expands the universe. And expands the mm -hmm. danger, you know, the mm -hmm. horror of it. And, yet, it, and, and it came out of character. I mean, that's sure. the kind of thing yes. that Dave yes. the cop would have done. He wouldn't leave being the good cop. He couldn't leave with that on his mind. Yeah. A simple parody movie is... is just, made a joke of it. Yeah, stupid lines, you know, just ran, they go for the joke, the joke, the joke. This was an absurdly funny line, you know, based on, like Stephen said, character. You know, when I, when I was in, in uh, English class in high school, we learned the, uh, the, the, the themes of, uh, of all stories. It was, uh, there were three of them, man against man, man against nature, man against himself. Well, I kind of thought that we kind of invented a, a new theme, <laughs> man against the absurd. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Man against, what? I'm sorry? Man against the absurd. Yes, Man against absurd. It's waiting it could be for all of the above, couldn't it? Waiting for Godot, except Godot finally shows up, and it's not pretty. Yeah. Well, there's one aspect about this movie that has made it a an American cult classic is that the um, the affection that is shared amongst many people in many generations uh, all over the world. Uh, there's you had mentioned our host had mentioned how that he thought it was very clever and innovative and people that are into science fiction, into horror, into the, the genres that we love, um, they're very sensitive people and they're very creative people. And I think they really tune in with the fact that this movie is not only the I, concept is creative, but it's a very colorful movie. Um, there was someone that, uh, I spoke to who's, a. um, a graphic artist and he says you know it's amazing that when they they have the the way they have the sets made up and when the clowns like walk into the set and go everything matches and everything works together and people i, re I really think people tune in on that and uh, it, it it kind of uh, speaks to their creative side not only to their fears and their wonderment but to their creative side and i think they just want to in some way be a part of it and and the kyoto brothers will uh Test, be testify to this that there are so many people that reach out to us with their drawings and uh, their costumes and uh, in, in, in my case people send me variations of my own music um, and it's just a wonderful thing that's been a, an incredible part of our lives and that's one of the reasons why we're kind of giving back here on the 30th anniversary this Saturday is like the weekend that the movie came out 30 years ago and we're going to have a, literally a circus celebration and a concert with an orchestra. And um, the Dickies, the, the punk band that performed the song originally, they are very much thriving in tour. They can't wait to um, be a part of this and perform this Saturday. And I don't know if you guys are in town or not. We are, you guys are, in, we are in town. Oh, them. Well, you've got to come. Come on. 
You've got to be there. This I is know, a historic event. I'm, I'm working, You're going to be able I'm, to tell people that you were there. It, well, isn't there going to be a video or an album or something? <laughs> well, of course, there's going to be all kinds. There's already an album out. We've got that covered. That was the easy part. Um, yeah, will there be a video? Of course. You think I would do something like this and, <laughs> and have the brothers and the cast and all the people there and all the fans? Everyone's going to be dressed in circus attire, The not only the people on stage, but the... Uh, the audience, and we have real killer clowns, right, guys? You have actual really cl killer clowns you're taking out of cryogenic uh, sleep to uh, be part of this. <laughs> we found but some clones. Very good. And see, yeah, it's we're going to make a video, but to be there and feel that electric energy of all those people, we have a, a full house, basically. Probably and, so. Uh, it's a, a thousand-seat theater. It's on Hollywood and Bolo, uh, Hollywood and Vine, and it couldn't be at the better. It couldn't be at a better time or a better place. Well, it's going to be the largest audience, I believe, that has ever sat down in one place and seen Killer Clowns. Yeah, that's, that's probably it's a, true. That's it's a very true. fine theater. It's it's a classic. I mean, uh, that's where. Oh, you've been there before, Susan. The the, the Montalban, yes. Oh, the Montalban. Okay, yes. Used the to be the Doolittle. It used to be the the Doolittle Theater, um, and uh, Mercado Montalban took it over, and uh, and even long Mont after he was gone, his voice lived on in the you know turn your phones off and relax into mm -hmm. a fine Corinthian leather, <laughs> and do not talk, <laughs> do not talk during the performance, or you will suffer the wrath of Khan. Let's Somebody take that line up. again. It's a beautiful place, and they haven't messed it up. Yeah, it's wonderful. And on the roof, they show movies. And uh, uh, Steve Kyoto and, and another graphic artist in Spain created this beautiful mural that graces the front of the theater that shows basically vine in hollywood and all the you know all the iconic spaces in hollywood and it shows that the invasion of hollywood by killer clowns there's actually a killer clown spaceship that has landed on on the roof of the montabon theater it's a beautiful wow. piece it's going to be on for at least another two weeks and if you uh can grab a picture uh uh, you know, go down there and get in front of him and grab a picture. You will have a piece of Hollywood history. We will do that, and we'll probably try and do that before uh, this this air. Now we missed yes. we missed the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> oh, you're they, they set up they, oh, they built the Millennium we, Falcon in the middle of Sunset Boulevard. No, they built it out in North Hollywood and brought it there in pieces. They've been working on this for months and couldn't tell us what it was, but we knew what they were doing. Because we knew people that uh, yeah. who were on the construction crew. And oh, they put it out there for like 24 hours and then take it away again. Because <laughs> for some reason, they, they won't leave it up in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard for two weeks. Darn <laughs> them. What? Why? There's all kinds of restrictions with that, I'm sure. Yeah, well, you, they needed a, can you imagine the parking tickets a Starship would rack up in a week? Mm. <laughs> not, as, not as many as a big trick top. To make it go away. Yep, so how did you guys get into filmmaking in the first place? What was the inciting moment? A lot of clowns and in film why, school. And the fact that you all did it together, that I find fascinating. Well, um, it was started in the, in the Bronx in the 50s, watching uh, television and, um, and going to the movies and just, uh, just getting bitten by the monster bug very early on. Yeah, yeah, we just watched monster movies and then little by little... We would, you know, it was a form of play. We had army men and dinosaur 
plastic figures and we would play in the dirt and create stories. And then we got an eight millimeter movie camera and started mm -hmm. animating them. So it was a, the whole filmmaking process was an outgrowth of play. Well, properly done, it still is. Yeah, growing up in New York and then on Long Island, didn't really know what the movie business was. It was just with a love, a fascination with the the movies you would see on TV or the uh, the movie theaters. But you know, King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, Seven Voyages Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts. Mm -hmm. Those are the movies that were fascinated and we loved as children. You know, now that now that I'm thinking about it, with all the different interviews and you know, we always said you know the the same story. Um, we were fascinated with dinosaurs. The Museum of mm -hmm. Natural History and the dinosaurs in King Kong, mm -hmm. I think. Because all we were thinking of, like, when we grew up, we were going to be maybe paleontologists. We hadn't developed uh, any artistic uh -huh. skills, really, although we liked to draw, you know, what we saw in the movies and on television. But I don't think we ever, you know, we moved out to Long Island. We had no idea that there were people that were making it. It never occurred to me in the Bronx that I want to make that. Um, it wasn't until we saw a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland that we got to see pictures of Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien and uh, Boris Karloff and, and Bela Lugosi that made the movies that were in the movies that we love. Mm -hmm. So you guys were heavily influenced by the works of Willis O'Brien, Ray Harryhausen. I mean, See, that's uh, yes, what I get uh, for being in the Bronx <clears throat> instead of Queens because the old Astoria Studios is still there. It's a, it's a no, museum it was, now. What Charlie mentioned, it was how fascinated with dinosaurs that made us gravitate to King Kong. But when King Kong came to New York, he really was walking in our neighborhood. We had elevated train tracks right down the block from us. So it was so surreal to see this fantasy figure actually walking in our neighborhood. And, and that's what I think helped me kind of take these images a little bit deeper and more seriously than just entertainment. I think it was because we, we pursued art career. Stephen was a sculptor and, and I was uh, 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 an illustrator. I think uh, when we started drawing, you know, the stuff we were drawing and sculpting was all inspired by the monsters. And it's really funny. My mom and dad would take us to, my mom took me to see, you know, Moby Dick. Uh, my mom took me to see The Fly. And I remember at a very young age, you know, I might have been six or seven years old, the, the one with David Hedison and Vincent Price. Mm -hmm. The, the scene opened up with the blood-spattered uh, printing press, or a press that actually he crushed his head in. And, you know, and I saw that when I was seven years old. That was pretty brutal, but that movie was, uh, you know, a wonderful love story. I was, I was five and I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> well, nobody, nobody cared then. They didn't have no, ratings. Wonder, my, mom, my mom took us to see The Fly. She was bored at home. She had yeah. to go out. We, go, we used to get out to Radio City Music Hall down in, in the city. And we saw yeah. Seven Voids of Sinbad with the show and everything. It was fantastic. Yeah, Journey to the oh, those were always wonderful to see the uh, at Radio City Music Hall to actually see a, a show yeah. in front of whatever, whatever movie you were going to see. Yeah, and, and, and guys, what if, I, I just thought of this just now, what if your parents were just really into musicals and every time you went to the movies, where would you be now? We probably would have not had Killer Clowns from Outer Space. We had Killer Clowns on Broadway. Talk about. Well, that's. But the thing was, Dad, you know, Dad would take us to the movies. I think because he knew we liked it, but he didn't take us to see westerns. My mom take us to see musicals, although 
her, her, re her record collection was all the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. I was singing those things when I was in elementary school because those are the albums my mother was playing. You know, South Pacific, mm -hmm. West Side Story, you know, uh, King and I. Oklahoma, stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So it could have been Clown the Homa. No. Yeah. The Clown no, and I. Seriously not. Come on. <laughs> Getting to kill you. Getting to watch all your entrails. You're on to something there. I am. I always am. Yeah. So let's talk about some of, some of your other, other achievements over the years. I, I find a Daytime Emmy nomination for the ABC Weekend Specials, which was sort of the kids' version of the... the uh, Anyway, um, Crash the Curiosaurus. I don't know anything else about this picture, but it must have had that was, amazing that costumes. A, that was the pilot for a series done at, at NBC, and we uh, received an Emmy for character design. It was a dinosaur that was living, a living dinosaur, living in the bowels of the Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. Oh, that's interesting, because many years later, there would be a movie called They Museum. Live, which is all about dinosaurs at the... Museum of Natural History in New York. It always has to be yeah, that museum, doesn't it? The Museum of Natural History. So well, we've been fortunate in our careers. We were involved in some pretty cool pictures. I mean, we worked on uh, The Critters for New Line Cinema. And right. we worked on, we created The Critters on all four of those movies. And then we worked with, uh, early on with Tim Burton, and we produced the Large Marge Effect in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Another really standout scene in a really cool movie. A really and then, surreal world, too. Oh, absolutely. And then working with Matt and Trey on uh, Team America. I was going to bring um, that up. It's, uh, it's a, just a great film. And we realized, we learned very quickly why they don't make a lot of marionette movies. <laughs> They're hell to work we with. Tried, Always stomping off to their trailer and getting tangled up. Yeah, we, we actually tried to talk them out of it. We said, guys, you, you really don't want to do this movie with, with puppets. And they said, no, we want to. We want to do it. I think we, we said no three times, and they, they kept coming back. Despite this, it turned into another one of those classic films. It's it's a cult classic film. Uh, I was like, classic may be an overstatement, but yeah. No, it it's is. I mean, it's, it's one of those uh, it, things it that... It stands out as something unusual. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Radioactive Dreams and, jeez, uh, most of the other stuff you've done. Well, we did Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, <laughs> they, came to, they, they, they came to us, uh, Disney came to us, because I guess they saw Killer Clowns, and uh, they thought that the, uh, the design style uh, or character designs sort of fit what the director, John Cherry, had in mind for the uh, Ernest Scared Stupid Troll Army. Yeah, they were kind of scary, but kind of silly and funny at the same time. Approachable kind of uh, monsters. Approachable monsters. There's a catchphrase. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they I really to... don't think there's anything approachable about any of our killer clowns. <laughs> well, no. From a distance, I think they are. But when you get too close, you realize it's not funny anymore. Well, that, that's, no. one the, that's one of the, the, the concepts that's interesting. I guess, you know, people are savvy now. You go down to Hollywood Boulevard or anything, and you might very well see a gorilla walking down the street or a monster. And you assume right away, well, it's just a promotion or a guy in a costume. And you might even, you know, interact with it or let it get closer than you would think before you would realize that, hey, wait a minute, this isn't a guy in a costume. This might be a real gorilla. You know, so that was uh -huh. the premise that we kind of based it on that, you know, people are sort of that they allow people to get into their personal space 
you know, thinking that the, the, the world is actually a safe place, we explored the fact that maybe the world isn't a really safe place. Just like the, the, the two clowns completely disassembling that drugstore and, and, and <laughs> piling, up, piling up all that crap that they've gotten from the I, shelves I and bringing it they, to the counter. I just hope that they <laughs> didn't have to do that shop twice because that was going to be a bear to have to rearrange and, you know, the... Yeah, re- redressing one that set. Deals. That's what it was, one take. That, yeah, I, I, it had to have been because redressing that set after all that, <laughs> not going to happen on a low your, budget. Your continuity <laughs> girl had would have had a, you know, a nervous breakdown. But that pretty much sums up what the clowns were doing. They weren't here to take over the planet or enslave people. They were just goofing around, screwing around, and, and stuff for a quick bite to eat. And Yeah, but the bites to eat were us. So combining it with one of your other previous <laughs> projects, if it had been the Mr. Potato Head show, at least they'd have had fries with that. Now, there's some, you saw the Mr. Potato Head show. Uh, for my sins, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? A while ago. You know, Susan, every now and then you show. amaze me with the depth of your knowledge. Thank you. I just, that's just really surprising stuff. You know, and, and that you knew about the original theater in New York uh, uh, having to do with uh, King well, Kong as well. And yeah. That was, that's something. Well, what, that's anyway, commitment. Meanwhile, back at, back at the potatoes. <laughs> no, but, but for people who hadn't seen, you know, Mr. Potato Head, you know, Hasbro came, they wanted to uh, reinvent Mr. Potato Head. So we came up with new characters, you know, the, with sweet potatoes and... Uh, Johnny Rotten Apple. Johnny Rotten Apple, then uh, Dr. Fruitcake as a villain. Mr. Baloney. Was, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Baloney was his best friend. <laughs> yep. And you know what? Robo it was a really funny show directed by uh, Chuck Serino, a friend of ours. You know what? It got one season, and uh, but it was like it was Pee Wee's Playhouse, you know, uh, for vegans. You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It was all connected. Everything seemed to lead from one thing, one thing to the next. Everything seemed to lead you forward. That's our career. Did you ever have a sense that uh, maybe this was all a kind of destiny? Uh, it, it happens so accidentally. We have no control over our lives. We just create stuff and we kind of throw it out there. We've been fortunate that some of our ideas have been picked up and, uh, and produced, but there are probably even more ideas on the burner that uh, just haven't really made it to the screen yet. Yeah, speaking of that, I'm seeing in your credits here the return of the killer clowns from outer space in 3D. You didn't see that. Yes. No, but that, the, well, I haven't like seen that. it yet. I don't but think I've, that exists. No. Um, uh-huh. that's, not, that's not supposed to be uh, publicized. Don't believe everything you read. <laughs> yeah. Killer Clowns from Outer Space is and would be the definitive 3D movie. It was a concept made to be a 3D movie. In the way 3D movies, not just to you know immerse you in the screen, it was to have things come out of the screen at the audience. We would do something, the killer clowns, with the deadly paddle ball gag. The paddle ball is the classic 3D oh, yeah, gag. But, oh, but what yeah. you read was one and of the... House of Wax. Uh, yeah, we've been developing that yes. idea since we made the original film, and we just hit a couple of obstacles all along the way over these 30 years to get something produced. So that was just one iteration that uh, came out, but then it never really got funded. Oh, but uh, I tell you, because of the success of it, I believe that there is renewed interest in the clown sequel, and uh, we are actively working towards getting something out uh, in the near future. Yeah, we would be thrilled to get something out. As everyone knows, 
Unfortunately, the 3D process makes That's movies crazy. more expensive, and we're trying to get people interested in producing an affordable killer clown movie. Well, shooting in 3D in the first place, that's that's pretty saucy stuff. Uh, saucy. Yeah, well, it's, it's you don't realize when you go to the when you go to the movies now and you see 3D. There's this company in Burbank called Studio D and they add the 3D after the fact. It's the most bizarre thing. Mm. And it's their yeah, whole but that job. Looks like crap. I mean, yeah, and not, it does. Yeah. It looks like crap. And then they and then uh, 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 the the numbers come in and go, and people are going, "Oh, well, 3D doesn't do that much." Well, of course it doesn't. If you don't plan on it, on it being part of your production in the first place, you don't shoot in 3D. Of course, it's going to look like crap. Well, it's like bad CG. You know. Yeah. You know, exactly. Computer- Rated images look great when you spend a lot of money on them. They look crappy when you don't spend the money on it. So CG is going to be the same. It's diminishing returns. You don't want to spend money on it. You get crappy, you know, 3D. Um, we'd like to do it, you know, the, the classic way. But, uh, you know, again, finding someone who, you know, all of a sudden they see the idea. Kill a clown from outer space in 3D. I get it. Let's do it. That's what we're waiting for. I'm waiting for the person on the other side of the table. It ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm telling you. Yeah. Well, and it's going to happen. In the meantime, there is a possible other outlet for the killer clowns in outer space in 3D, and that is virtual reality. Oh my God! You could well, do you could do that. that. And that's something that is a very realistic possibility. Yes. Yeah, because you uh, can you can do that, and uh, uh, there there are two game engines that that support the idea. One of them is the Unreal Engine. The other one yes. is Unity. And, and you'd be in the middle of the big top and look around and the pods are all over you. Ah! I love it. Yes, it's funny you should mention that because it's something we're entertaining right now. And it's very exciting for us to take our killer clown world and bring it into that virtual reality interactive market. So uh, just I'd say just keep watching the skies. <laughs> That's excellent. Those, those are I, famous last words. I, I nailed Reaching it. for the stars. <laughs> the end question mark <laughs> and with that we have come to the end of our show with edward Stephen, and charlie kyoto the kyoto brothers the creators of the killer clowns from outer space and the composer for the live performance coming up on may 19th at the montalban theater in los angeles mr john masari Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Event Horizon. We're very, very glad and very proud to have had you with us. And we're very, very sorry (laughs) to have subjected you to all this foolishness. (laughs) Uh, We're very honored to be asked. Thank you so much. Thank you you very much, you guys. You guys are wonderful. You have been listening to episode 197 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 19th, 2018, marking the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the release of Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Our guests today have been the creators of the Killer Clowns, Charles Edward and Stephen Kyoto, and the composer for the film's musical score, Mr. John Massari. Your hosts were Krypton Radio's executive producer Susan Fox and station manager Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again on May 20th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, tomorrow afternoon, that Sunday, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. 
Once all of the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is listener-supported sci-fi geek culture radio, and the vast majority of our funding comes from listeners just like you. If you liked this evening's program and you enjoy listening to Krypton Radio, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and contribute whatever you can. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2018 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>